Hey guys, welcome to Hope Brooklyn. Uh, so happy you're here. If it's your first time, thanks for being here. Uh, we know that Sunday mornings are cherished time for New Yorkers, and so you could be a lot of places, and we're just so honored that you're with us. We are a church plant, and we are in our preview season. What that means, I was thinking of a different metaphor because I've used the same metaphor every time, um, and I know some of y'all are getting tired of it. Uh, any baseball players in the house or softball players? No, okay, just me, got it. Um, I was a catcher, and when, when I bought a mitt, a new mitt, you could not use that mitt directly in games. You had to break it in first. So there were many hours playing toss with that mitt. You had to like, sm uh, like smother it in oil and bake it in the oven. Uh, you had to work it before it was suitable for a game. That's kind of what this is about right now, all right? Our culture is being established, and it just takes time. It just takes time for us learning who each other are, learning what we're about. Um, and that's what this preview season is. So the vision behind Hope Brooklyn, sort of the three key points that we're gonna always use as our, as our uh, stars to guide us forward is honestly, it's a page out of Jesus's playbook. Jesus did three things and he did them really well. He was constantly surrounded by crowds and disciples. If you read the story of his life, you see those around him who were listening to him teach, who were watching him work, and they would say, you are the Lord. But there are also those around him who are not sure what to call him yet. Maybe they're just here for a show. Maybe they wanna see some miracles. Maybe they need a couple more uh, teachings before they're ready. That's cool. Jesus never rushed people. He was fine with people just being around him. So we are gonna be a community, not of all Christians. We're gonna be a community with all walks of life, um, is, is, wherever you may be on the spiritual spectrum. We hope that you're here. We're also gonna be a community that eats together. Jesus constantly is sharing meals with his friends, his disciples, and he's getting a bad reputation because of who he eats with as well. So food is central for us. That's why we have brunch directly after service. That's why our small groups are called tables. They're dinners in people's homes throughout Brooklyn because we believe something transformative happens when you mix good people uh, with good food. And then finally, we are a community of the story. The gospel for me um, is primarily a story. It is the story of the creator God's interaction and pursuit of his creation. And if I understand it correctly, there seems to be no limits to this pursuit. So if that's the story, we wanna be a community of this story. We wanna figure out what kind of God this is. Um, what's asked of us. And so we focus on the story over brunch with crowds and disciples all gathered together. So that's what we're going to be about. That's what this preview season is for. And it's really exciting because in this preview season, we get to celebrate our first Advent together. I know some people may not have grown up celebrating Advent. Some people might have. Advent is a season in the church's history. Uh, we have evidence of it at least from the fourth century onward. It might have been around before then. And Advent celebrates the coming of Jesus. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning the coming, which is derived from the Greek word parousia, meaning presence. And I think the Greek word gets better at the idea um, because it deals with sort of the Greek conception of time. The Greeks had two ways they described time, chronos and kairos. Chronos is where we get chronological from. It's linear time. 
It's measurable time. Americans, we love chronos time. We obsess over it. We define our lives by it. We fire people if they're not good at it. Like chronos is what we're about. But God is a kairos God. The best way to explain this, imagine there's a parent with their child. The first parent spends two hours with their child, but the entire time the parent's on their phone, not giving the child any attention. The second parent spends 30 minutes with their child, but for those 30 minutes are asking the child question, is totally giving the child all their attention. Who spent more time with their child, right? The first one spent more chronos time, the second one spent more kairos time. It's presence. And so in Advent, every week we light a candle and the candles represent a specific theme, a specific element in the story uh, derived from Isaiah 9 to the prophet Isaiah, who says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned and the light grows with each passing week. The presence of God deepens. Last week, we talked about the candle of hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this week is the candle of waiting, the candle of expectation. Now, Americans are not the best. at waiting. <laughs> There's a little tension. That was a bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a little tension in the room right there. We're not good at waiting. However, if you were to give a cursory glance at the story of God from Genesis to Revelation, you would see that predominantly what the people of God spend their time doing is waiting. And I'm kind of going to steal a point from later on in the sermon. We just sang about it. Oh, glorious day. We celebrated the coming of Christ and we said we're still waiting for his return. Predominantly what it means to be part of God's people is to wait. There are literally too many examples to pick from. But I, I, I challenge you, just open up the Bible at random and read a story and you'll find more times than not, the person, the character in that story is waiting for something. So if you find yourself waiting for something today, anyone waiting for something today? Take heart, you're in good company. The question becomes though, how do we wait? Is there a right or wrong way to wait? And I think that's, that's the wrong way of framing it. Perhaps there's a more faithful and less faithful way of waiting. How does God want us to wait? Because waiting is the inevitability. Waiting is gonna happen. But how would God have us wait on his promises, on him? Now, for most of us, this is probably how we wait. This is how I wait, definitely. There was a, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I were also cinematographers because church planting doesn't pay the bills as much as you'd like to think. Um, but yeah, so we're cinematographers and there was a day a while back where we were gonna practice uh, with a new piece of equipment. We didn't have the time set in stone. We just decided, hey, today we're gonna practice. So we woke up and that morning there was, a, there was a big task I had to do, but I decided not to do it. I decided not to do it because I didn't know at what point Anna was gonna be free 
to start practicing. And the time dragged on. And then a friend texted me and asked if, if we could grab coffee. And I said, ah, I want to, but I can't because Anna and I, we have something that we, we got to do later on. And so I passed on the coffee and time went on. And basically we get to the end of the day and Anna's like, I'm so sorry, stuff came up, I can't do it. And I was angry, right? Okay, can I get an amen for that one, right? Yeah, David, thank you. I was angry. I felt like I had wasted my entire day. I was talking with Nathan one time and Nathan said something very wise. He goes, so much of the time it feels like we define our present by our future, don't we? We define our present. My entire day was defined by something that was gonna happen in the future that never did. And generally what happens if waiting for us is waiting turns to worry. It starts as good waiting, but then in the end, we become worriers. We're fretting. We're fretting over something that might never happen, but what if it does? Or we're, we're waiting and we're fretting of this thing that should happen, but what if it doesn't? And then we build it up so big in our heads that when it finally comes to be, it's a disappointment because our expectations are way too high. So how do we wait without worry? Because that's, I think that's the, the key to God's form of waiting. Whatever you're waiting for today, whatever you're waiting on, how can we wait without worrying? And I think the example of Simeon, what Josh read today, is a great example. And there are a couple points from that story I just wanna draw out for us today of how we can wait, because we're gonna wait, how we can wait faithfully, how we can wait without letting it rule our lives and turn into worry. Now, the first thing I noticed in Simeon's story is that you can wait without worry when you know that what you're waiting for is not for you. Reading about Simeon, the first thing that stands out is the exemplary character of this man. He's described three ways in the Greek text. He's described as dikaios, eulabes, and the phrase numa hagion ep altan. These are staggering. Dikaios means righteous. If you were to read the book of Romans, the, the letter of Paul to the Romans, you would see dikaios everywhere. It means to be made right with God. And we find out that the only one who's ever been made right with God is Jesus. And Jesus, the, the, the fancy theological word is imputes his righteousness to us. He gives his righteousness to us. But Simeon is described as dikaios. Luke says he is a righteous man. He's also described as eulabes, which means godly or devout. That's a word that's also not used very frequently in the New Testament, only for a few people. And finally, that phrase, numa hagion ep altan, says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now why that's interesting is because generally as the story goes, the progression of the story, we do not affirm um, 
There are very few examples of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, being poured out on people before Jesus does that after his ascension. Jesus is crucified, resurrected, he ascends, and then he pours out his Holy Spirit onto the church. Before that, there are very few examples of the Holy Spirit being continuously indwelling a person. But Simeon is described as having that, that, that gift, that favor. Luke is sparing no expenses to say that this is a special man. This is a special man. And he's waiting on the consolation of Israel. That's a shorthand for the restoration of Israel. He's waiting, as all of the Jews were in that time, for God to return, for the Messiah to return, and to restore Israel as, as light among the nations, to forgive her sins, to wash away her imperfections, and to restore her as, as his faithful bride, as his beloved bride. He's waiting for that. And the promise God gives him is that he would see the Messiah before he dies. The Christos, it's the Greek word for Messiah, the Christos, Christ. He would see the Messiah before he dies. Now I ask you first to consider the humility of this situation. Here is a man who is righteous, who is devout, and who has the Holy Spirit continuously upon him in a time when that was very rare. This is one who deserves a promise from God, if anyone does, to lead the charge, to, to lead armies. God should promise him greatness. And the promise God gives him is that you're gonna see my, my savior. You're gonna meet the one who will restore Israel and then you're gonna die. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm waiting for big things to happen in my life. I'm waiting for things that, like I'm waiting for that promotion. I'm waiting for that raise. I'm waiting for that special someone to finally come into my life. I'm waiting for, these, for my career to take off. I'm waiting for big things. And yet Simeon is waiting to meet the one who's gonna save his family and then to die. And I, I've never been described as righteous or godly. <laughs> Here's someone who deserves everything. And the promise is so humble and simple. What you see, a common theme in the promises of God is that the promise was to him, but it was not for him. And that's really common, guys. And we could, the, the best example is all the way back in the beginning of the story. After God creates the world and the world rebels, and then God wipes out the world but saves a remnant through Noah, and then the world still doesn't um, act right to, to, to be in right relationship with God, then he comes to Abraham. And he tells Abraham that I'm gonna bless you, that through you, I'm gonna create a people that are my special people, it's Israel, and such that all the nations will be able to see what it looks like to be in relationship with the living God. And through you, he says, I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. The promise was to him, but it was not for him. You're gonna see the Messiah, Simeon, but whose Messiah is it? Is it Simeon's Messiah? Well, yes, 
but it's also a lot bigger than that. It's Israel's Messiah. The promise was to him, but not for him. What you're waiting for today, friends, it is only for you if it also blesses others. It is only for you, and it's only from God if whatever it is is a blessing for others as well. And I challenge you to search your heart. <laughs> Humans are so good at self-deception. Of course, we say, no, 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 no. It's for others. I want it for others. But do we really mean that? When the rubber meets the road, do we really, what are we waiting for? Is it for ourselves or is it actually for a blessing for others? So a great example of this is marriage. I know, I mean, I'm sure there's some people in here thinking, no, I can wait for marriage, all right? (laughs) But there might be some other people here like, you know what? I do have a desire. I have a passion for intimacy. I want to be truly known by someone else. I want to know someone. And those are good things. God designed marriage. But marriage as it was intended to be, per God's design, is not exclusively for the two people in marriage. It is to serve as a sign of the type of covenantal relationship that God has with Israel, that God has with his creation. And so marriage at its best is to point us to a bigger relationship. It's to show us what faith looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what grace looks like. I love the uh, quote from one of my favorite theologians and he goes, um, we don't get married because we fall in love. As Christians, he's talking. Christians don't get married because they fall in love. They get married so that they can learn what love is. It's so true. Marriage is the context by which we get to learn what covenantal love is. The waking up and choosing the person over and over and over. The forgiveness of the other. Even when forgiveness is really hard. That's the covenantal relationship that God has with his creation daily. And so the best marriages point to that. So you might be waiting for marriage today. That's a good thing. It really is. But recognize it'll only be as God intends it to be. The promise might be to you. You might be waiting for yourself. But only if it's blessing others too. So that's the first thing I notice in Simeon. What you're waiting for is not exclusively for you. Secondly, what you're waiting for might not look like how you imagine it. What you're waiting for today, it might not look how you imagine. Now, Simeon has promised to see the Messiah. And Messiah is a word with incredible, it is absolutely um, fraught with political and militaristic connotations. It it essentially means the Lord's anointed. It comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which means to anoint with oil. So in the Israel tradition, when the next king was to be chosen, selected, uh, a prophet would anoint the head of of that future king with oil, and they would be called the Lord's anointed. So the most... um, uh, the example that uh, we probably know best is when Samuel went to David and he anointed David and he elected him and said, you are God's chosen. You are God's anointed. God has chosen you to lead his people. Notice it's still not just for him. He, God didn't choose David to get rich and to get successful and to have a great life. God chose David. He anointed David to save his people, to lead his people. But this word, 
And again, all of Israel and Simeon is waiting for the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Lord's anointed. And in every example that they have in their history, it refers to a king. So you would think, okay, he's waiting for a king. And yet somehow, guided by the spirit, Simeon goes to the temple and he sees the child, Jesus, and he recognizes him. He recognizes him as the Messiah. And he's not just a child. I don't know about you, but when I picture a king, I don't see them in their infant stage, right? I see them full grown. But he recognizes the Messiah in a little child, and not just a child, but a poor child. The verse right before where we started reading today says that Mary and Joseph came to the temple to offer sacrifices. That was part of the law, the Jewish law. But they were offering, Luke tells us, two pigeons, two turtle doves. Now that was, comes from Leviticus, where we're told that if, uh, if you're a poor family and you don't have enough money, you don't have enough livestock to offer a larger animal, you can offer birds. So we know that Jesus came from a poor family. So Simeon, who's been waiting his life to meet the Messiah, sees a child, sees a poor child, and goes, oh my gosh. And of course, any of us who are familiar with the story of God, I like to think he just broke out into laughter. It's just like, of course, oh, of course it would be. Of course it would be a poor child. That's just like you, God. Of course. In Kairos time, not measured by uh, ticks on a clock, but measured by depth. There's a psalm which says, deep calls to deep. I like to think that Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, just saw this child and his spirit exploded. Deep calls to deep and he recognized immediately who that was. What you're waiting for might not look like how you imagine. When I was, a, uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I studied abroad in London for a semester. And part of the program was I got to uh, do an internship. And so before that internship, I, I prayed. I wanted to work uh, with a, a vibrant church community. I wanted to grow in my faith. I wanted to learn what the gospel is more. I wanted to work in a, a, an inner city community that was really doing great gospel work. And I got placed, and that was my prayer. I got placed at Wesley's Chapel, which is the first Methodist church um, in London. I still remember, I walked in to my first day at the internship, not knowing any of this, to my first staff meeting, and it was five staff and myself, and I'm pretty sure I was the only one under the age of 60. Maybe 55, maybe 55. Vibrant church community. There was Peter, he was an 85-year-old British man who pretty much slept through every staff meeting except when he would wake up at the most inopportune times and he would mumble something in British that I never understood, but I guessed was always a joke because everyone else laughed. <laughs> and then he'd go back to sleep. There was Joy, who was this beautiful Ghanaian woman who'd been in the church since she was a little child. There was Jennifer, who was a, uh, a pastor there from Yorkshire. 
and she always had stuff in her teeth so I could tell what her breakfast was every time I met her, but she was always smiling. <laughs> and there was Leslie, and Leslie was the pastor of Wesley's Chapel. He was a Welshman who didn't have a toothbrush until he was 16, spent 30 years in Haiti with his wife ministering to the people, and was on the front lines in England for immigration reform. I was part of a church probably around this size, around 50 or so folks, and there were over two dozen first languages other than English spoken in this church. Here I was, a young American who wanted a vibrant church. Lord, I wanna learn what vibrancy means. And of course, for Americans, that means youth, right? It means youth, what's young, what's cool, what's sexy, and God goes, I'll show you gospel vibrancy. And he puts me smack dab in the middle of the most amazing people I've ever met, doing really important gospel work. He answered every one of my prayers. It just didn't look like how I thought it was. What you're waiting for might not look like how you imagine, but it'll be exactly what you need. And the last thing I see in Simeon's story, what you're waiting for is not for you. It might not be what you think you're waiting for. And it's a lifelong inevitability. It's a cliche. It's not the destination, but the journey. But the reason why cliches become such is because they're true. Simeon is promised to see the Messiah before he dies. And he recognizes the weight, the kairos of the anointed one. In a poor baby, he holds him and he praises God. And this is what he says. He says, now you release your servant in peace, O master, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, what you have prepared before the face of all people, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, of the nations, and glory to your people Israel. He praises God for God fulfilled his promise. He met the Messiah, but then he goes on and he says to Mary and Joseph, and this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and as a sign of opposition so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul too. My eyes have seen your salvation. You have fulfilled your promise and this child is destined. He gives thanks to God for fulfilling his promise and he offers another prophecy of something yet more to wait for. To recognize the Messiah in a child is to know that more time of waiting is to come. Or as St. Augustine said, our hearts, O Lord, are restless until they find their rest in thee. And spoiler alert, they won't find that eternal rest in him, this side of the resurrection. Another way of saying all this, fancy word, $2 word, the nature of life is eschatological. Eschatological comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means last. The nature of of life is a looking forward to the last day because on that last day, finally, Finally, God descends, the Kairos God envelops us, 
and we're not ruled by the clock anymore. We feel in the depths of our bones, the depths of our being, a fullness that we've never experienced. Every day we wait for the ultimate day. So what you're waiting for, what I'm waiting for, it cannot bear the weight of our hope. It will not satisfy. It will only disappoint. So Simeon finds joy in the fulfillment of this promise because he recognizes that it's not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, that there's more waiting to come. What you're waiting for, realize that even that will not satisfy the deepest cravings and desires of your heart. But when you know that, when you know that the secret to life of waiting for God is to find joy and walking with him, even as we wait for him. The secret to life is to find joy in walking with God, even as we wait for God. We recognize that waiting is the hardest work of hope, which is why it's the second Sunday of Advent, and the first one was hope. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Which brings up the last point that we have. Um, I was in North Carolina yesterday. My cousin died unexpectedly this past week. He was 27 years old, and he died of an asthma attack. Um, The shock, the pain, the grief, I mean, we can't even process it as a family yet. And I was in North Carolina, and I was sitting with my aunt, uh, his mom, and she goes, uh, she goes, I would give absolutely anything to see him right now. Absolutely anything. But I must live. Now, how a woman says that less than a week after losing her son, I don't know. But she goes, I must live. And she paused for a second. She goes, I must live so that I'll be ready when I meet him again which brings up the hardest lesson of waiting, that somehow waiting prepares us for what we're waiting for. And that's the deepest and most confounding mystery of it all, that whatever passion is in your heart that is unfulfilled, whatever promise or or desire that has yet to be realized, Somehow, and I I can't tell you how, somehow the waiting for it prepares you for when you receive it. Which is why it's the hardest work of hope. So I encourage all of us today, as we wait for the Lord, as we wait for the various things that I know people in here are waiting for in their life, to wait as Simeon waited knowing that the promise was to him, but not exclusively for him. Knowing that what he thought he might be waiting for, it might look a little different than he imagines it. Finding joy in the waiting, because his hope was not in it, but on that ultimate day, that eschatological day. And knowing that somehow, in some mysterious way, waiting prepares us for what we're waiting for.